Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys as always, just to gather together with the body of Christ and in praise and in worship. You know, worship is not just about singing. Uh, the Greek word worship in the New Testament is the word proskuneo. It describes what amounts to an act of surrender uh, and honor and uh, respect and affection. Literally, the word means to kiss towards uh, proskuneo. But the implication involves just a bowing before someone, a, a prostrating yourself before someone in great reverence, throwing kisses towards them out of great respect and, and adoration. And so we worship God through singing praises to Him, but we also worship worship God through the study of his word. Jesus is the word become flesh. And so we ought to treat his word with the same sort of honor and respect that we would our savior. God has given us his word as a means to, to know him better, to know his will, to know his plans, his attributes, his glorious wonders, okay? to know the difference between his ways and the ways of this world, to protect us, to encourage us, and to equip us for all that he has in store. So this morning, we're going to continue in our time of worship through the study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to pick up where we last left off. Okay, Last week, if you were with us, you may remember, we covered the details of what took place one Sabbath morning as Jesus taught in a local synagogue beyond the Jordan. While gathered to teach in the synagogue, Jesus encountered a woman there who had a spirit of infirmity for the past 18 years. She was bent over at the waist, doubled over, unable to stand up straight. Jesus, if you guys recall, he saw her, he called her, and he touched her, okay, loosening her bond, uh, her infirmity and the bond that Satan had upon her. Immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. It was a glorious day. This woman who had been held in bondage for 18 years was miraculously healed by Jesus, set free on the Sabbath, but not everybody was happy about it. The ruler of the synagogue was actually filled with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. In our study, we noted how this religious man was bound up in legalism. He was bound up in traditions of the law. His bondage was worse off than that of the woman. While the woman suffered from physical bondage that was plain to see, this man suffered from a spiritual and inner bondage of the heart and the mind that he was oblivious to. Jesus rebuked the ruler of the synagogue, set him straight regarding why it was appropriate for him to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus pointed out the man's own hypocrisy and hard-heartedness and that he was willing to make exceptions for animals being loosened on the Sabbath, but not a fellow human made in the image of God. Well, our account this morning picks up with what transpired right after this event. While Jesus was still at the synagogue and then... From there, it details some more of Jesus' teachings regarding the kingdom of God as he traveled through the various cities and villages of the region. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. And the title of our study is going to be Shocking Revelations About God's Kingdom. Okay, Shocking Revelations About God's Kingdom. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read through our text this morning in its entirety, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke continues detailing the events of that Sabbath morning with the following in verse 18. Then he said, referring to Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, 
I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come before you, Lord, to open up your word, Lord, to receive from you uh, all that your word uh, would just do in our own hearts and in our own lives, Lord, that it might encourage us and strengthen us, edify us, Lord, uh, challenge us, perhaps even correct us if need be. And so, Lord, we want to just yield ourselves as an act of worship, Lord, just to submit ourselves to you and to your word. May we understand what you are talking about as we look at these shocking uh, revelations about your kingdom, Lord. I pray that we would understand them We'd understand the immediate context of them, and Lord, that we might be able to make application to our own lives, that we might leave this place having grown in our understanding of who you are and what your heart is for us. And so, Lord, we give you this time, and we ask, we need your Spirit's presence to lead and guide us, and we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The phrase kingdom of God um, is used 70 times in the New Testament scriptures and was a favorite specifically of Dr. Luke, the physician who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Of the 70 times it's used, 40 of them are found in either the gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. It's actually used 33 times alone in the gospel of Luke, the most of any other book in the Bible. The idea of the kingdom of God was that it spoke of God's presence, his rule, his reign, how God was sovereign overall. Specifically, the notion of the kingdom of God was something that was a bit of a mystery for most. After Jesus shared the parable of the soils, the disciples came to him and asked him about the meaning of the parable. And Jesus said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery. Okay, that word mystery could be understood as the the secret or hidden truths of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. You see, the kingdom of God was a mystery. It was something that had been hidden or unknown, something that could not be known without the assistance of divine revelation. A mystery in the New Testament sense of the word speaks of something that was not previously known, but was made known. It was revealed or manifested through God, His Spirit, and or his son. In our text this morning, Jesus speaks much about the kingdom of God, and he uses this time to share some shocking revelations regarding the kingdom of God. Many people had come to their own conclusions about God's kingdom. They had settled matters in their own heart, in their own mind about what God's kingdom would be like, but Jesus comes along in our text and he shakes things up a bit. Now, For those of you who like to take notes, perhaps outline our text, if you're one of those uh, that like to do that, we're going to break down these verses into three primary sections, okay? In verses 18 through 21, we're going to note some parables about the kingdom of God, okay? Parables about the kingdom of God. Jesus shares two parables in these verses that seem to be describing the kingdom in similar ways. Parables, if you recall, we've looked at parables before. We will continue to do so uh, over the next couple chapters. They're meant to uh, be earthly stories or, or lessons that convey or reveal a heavenly truth. Parable simply means to cast alongside, and so they would tell an earthly story, but cast alongside it is usually a, a heavenly truth that Jesus is trying to teach. Um, and so, uh, in verses uh, 18 through 21, we have the parables of the kingdom of God. In verses 22 through 27, we're going to look at the path to the kingdom of God that Jesus lays out, a path that many people were unaware of. And then finally, we will note some very shocking revelations regarding the people of the kingdom of God. We're going to discover that there were a whole lot of assumptions going on, assumptions that could potentially cost people their spot within 
the kingdom of God. So with that, let's go ahead. We'll jump into this first section dealing with some parables about the kingdom of God. We're going to take a lot of time here because we have a lot to uh, unpack, not within the text, but just properly interpreting it. So take a look at verses 18 and 19 with me. It says, Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It was like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. We'll stop right there. It would appear that Jesus shared this parable immediately following the event that we covered last week regarding the woman being loosed from her spirit of infirmity at the local synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus had rebuked the ruler of the synagogue for his hypocrisy, and he put him and those who supported him to shame. The multitudes rejoiced over what had been done. And then Jesus responded with a teaching regarding the kingdom of God and how it was like a mustard seed. Jesus asked the question, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? And he proceeded to describe a man who took a mustard seed, put it in his garden, how the mustard seed grew to become a large tree, so large, in fact, that the tree became a place for the birds of the air to make their nest in its branches. Now, to some extent, this makes sense from the physical side of things, right? We understand how to take seeds, which are small, uh, we plant them, we water them, and then we watch them grow into you know, full-grown plants and or trees, right? I mean, we all kind of get that and understand that. And uh, the thing that we need to consider is, what is the heavenly truth that Jesus is wanting to get across regarding the kingdom of God and how it is like a mustard seed. Now, as you can imagine, since we are not told the heavenly truth, Jesus is casting this parable alongside, there are different interpretations upon what Jesus is trying to illustrate. And really, there are two main schools of thought when it comes to interpreting the parable of the mustard seed. I'm going to lay them both out for you. I'll tell you which one I think it is, but I also understand that this is not a universally held interpretation. And so I will leave it to you to decide for yourselves based upon what we are able to look at. One school of thought identifies the mustard seed as the church. The church will start off very small, just like the mustard seed. It will be Jesus and his disciples that start the church. It will have a very small beginning. But then, you know, like the mustard seed, it will grow. In fact, it will grow to a size bigger than anyone would have ever thought or even imagined possible. You see, mustard is an herb. It normally grows in the form of a plant. It could be described maybe as a bush. It can often look like a weed with bright yellow flowers on it. Here is a picture of the kind of mustard grown in Israel and other parts of the Middle East. As you can see there, that's something that you might find in a garden as that's what's portrayed here in our parable. He goes out into his garden, he plants this. Maybe they're a couple feet high, um, okay? This particular, there are actually three different types of mustard that we use to make mustard, okay? This is white mustard. It's still yellow, but they call it white mustard. There's brown mustard and black mustard, but they're all yellow too, so I don't know why. Um, But this is white mustard. This is the kind of mustard that grows in the Middle East, okay? Now, What is the heavenly truth Jesus is wanting to get across regarding the kingdom of God, how it is like this mustard seed, all right? The fact that the mustard seed grows into a tree with branches big enough for birds to nest in, it speaks of a bigger growth than what one could ever have anticipated or imagined, okay? A tree, it it pictures something that is strong and, and grounded, okay? Those that hold to this point of view say that this is what will happen to the church, that it will start small, but will then grow larger than anyone else ever expected it to. It will become like a tree, firmly planted, grounded, and secure. And the birds, they're believed to represent the Gentiles that find security and comfort within the church. Uh, This is based upon some Old Testament prophecies of Ezekiel. Uh, In Ezekiel 31, the birds of the heaven are used to symbolize the great nations that sought protection and shelter amongst the nation of Assyria. Uh, Though the context of Ezekiel 31 doesn't support the idea of birds being a good thing, uh, nonetheless, because birds were used to describe Gentile nations in the Old Testament, some look at this as such. And so... 
the overall interpretation of this parable is that the church will start out small, but then experience incredible amounts of growth, and it will provide shelter and a home for all the nations of the world. That's one way to look at it, okay? And it's a very prominent uh, interpretation. One, if you've ever studied this before, I'm sure you've probably heard The other school of thought starts out similarly, but has a very different implication for the latter part. The other school of thought agrees that the mustard seed uh, is representative of the church. They also agree that the church will start out very small uh, with the disciples, and then it will begin to grow. Now, here is where the big difference comes in. Unlike the first school of thought that suggests this parable depicts a positive growth in the church and its great impact upon the world, it sees the growth in a negative perspective. The school of thought suggests that the growth the seed experiences is an unnatural growth, that it is going to grow into something it wasn't intended to be. And this is based upon the detail Jesus gave about the mustard seed growing into a large tree rather than what normally would grow into a a bush-like plant. Herbs shouldn't grow into trees, large trees that birds nest in. People suggest that this is what is going to happen to the church, that the church will start out small with the work of the disciples, begin to experience growth, but then it will grow into something that it wasn't intended to be. And people from this school of thought believe the birds, they actually represent agents of the evil one that find shelter within the church. So which one is it? Which one's right? Uh, Both start off very similar, right? But they have very uh, separate and opposing conclusions and implications. Is the parable meant to encourage us, to show us the wonderful growth of the church, the positive effects it will have upon the rest of the world? Or is it a warning that the church is going to grow into something it wasn't intended to be, something that has artificial, unnatural growth, something that grows so large that the enemy is able to set up his agents within it and allow them to thrive? Now, When it comes to Bible interpretation, there are many things that we can look to in order to assist us in properly understanding the scriptures. We can look to the original language. We do a lot of cross-references, different things like that, okay? But one of the most important things that we must consider is context, okay? What do the verses around these verses speak of? In what context were these words shared? What happened right before? What happens right after? Oftentimes, context is the biggest clue when it comes to properly understanding difficult portions of Scripture. And one thing that we do have going for us is that Jesus has shared this particular parable before. According to Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus shared this exact same parable with the multitudes during his time in Galilee as well. Now he's in Perea, right? And he's speaking to a different group of people. But we know that he spoke this parable out by the Sea of Galilee uh, to the multitudes there. And so we have some extra context that we can look to. So let's consider the context here in Luke. Jesus just finished attending a worship service in a synagogue that had within it a woman that was bound by Satan and a religious leader that was bound by legalism and hard-heartedness. Jesus loosened the woman's bond the enemy had upon her, and he rebuked the ruler of the synagogue, and the multitudes rejoiced. Okay? We see, I guess, some elements could apply to both interpretations. We don't understand maybe everything. Immediately after this, Jesus is going to share another parable about leaven, which we're going to get to after this. But right after that, as we've already read in our text today, we're going to be told about how there will be many who think they are part of the kingdom of God, only to find out that they have been left out of the kingdom of God. Now consider the context of Matthew's gospel as well. Matthew shares this parable alongside a series of many other parables, all pertaining to the kingdom of God in chapter 13. If you want to go to Matthew 13 later on and read them all, you can Prior to the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus shares the parable of the wheat and tares. In this parable, we are told about how a man sowed good seed in his field, but while he slept, unbeknownst to him, an enemy, oh, excuse me, an enemy came along and sowed tares among his wheat. Uh, and when it came time for the seed to sprout, there were tares mixed in with the man's wheat. The servants of the man asked if they should pull up the tares, but the man said to wait until the harvest time because he didn't want to do anything to uproot the good wheat. 
When the time for the harvest would come, the man would simply direct his servants to bundle together the tares for the fire and to gather together the wheat into his barn. Now, the bonus that we have is that in Matthew's gospel, we're given the interpretation of this parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through 39, Jesus described all the different elements of this parable to his disciples. He said that Jesus is the man who sowed the good seed. The field is the world. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. And the enemy who sowed the tares is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers, okay, the servants of the man, are the angels who will go out at the end of the age. Jesus will send them out to separate the sons of the wicked one from the righteous. The wicked will be cast into hell and the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom. That is the proper interpretation of that parable. Jesus tells us so. Now, Jesus also shared the parable of the soils in the same context as the parable of the mustard seed in addition to the parable of the dragnet. The parable of the soils, maybe you're more familiar with. The parable of the dragnet, dragnet is not as prominent. But the parable of the soils speaks of seed falling on different kinds of soils. Of the four different types of soils mentioned, only one kind of soil actually produced a fruitful crop. The parable of the dragnet speaks of how the kingdom of God is like a dragnet that is cast into the sea and it brings in all sorts of different kinds. After bringing in the net, the fishermen have to separate between the good and the bad. This too spoke of how at the end of the age, angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. Jesus gives us the interpretation of the parable of the dragnet. So, Based upon the context of Luke and the other Gospels where this teaching is recorded, it leads me to believe that the emphasis is upon a mixing of the bad in with the good. This context lends to support the idea of unexpected growth that is bad, that is unnatural, that was not intended. Okay, Things have gotten in that shouldn't have been there in the first place. How there will be some that may look like they're supposed to be there, but ultimately will be left out of the kingdom. Now, another thing to consider is what Bible scholars call expositional constancy. Okay, Expositional constancy is a fancy word used to state a particular principle of Bible interpretation. And the basic idea behind expositional constancy is that it teaches us that symbolism in Scripture tends to be consistent. Okay, God is light, Jesus is the light of the world. We are called to be the light of the world. Okay? Uh, light, symbolically speaking, consistently speaks of something good, something meant to guide and to lead us. Darkness, on the other hand, okay, is consistently seen as something that is bad, something that is negative. Okay? So whenever we come across light, we understand how oh, it's talking about something good. Whenever it talks about something that's dark, it's usually something bad. What does this have to do with the parable of the mustard seed? Well, in Matthew and Mark's gospel account, Jesus shared the parable of the mustard seed soon after sharing the parable of the soils. And in the parable of the soils, Jesus identified the birds as agents of the wicked one. The birds come along, they snatch away the seed that falls on the wayside, never giving it an opportunity to grow. In order to remain consistent, we should interpret the birds in the parable of the mustard seed in the same manner as Jesus used them in the parable of the soils. The birds nesting in the mustard tree would not be a good thing. Okay? It would be seen as a place where the enemy's agents have come in and, and set up shop. It would not make sense for Jesus to identify birds as an agent of Satan in one parable and then to turn around and use the same imagery in a different parable and to suggest that it's actually something that's good. Okay, that it's a good thing, like the Gentiles finding a home within the church. It isn't consistent, right? And so it is my opinion that both the context in which this parable is shared and the principle of expositional constancy point to the interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed being a negative one, okay? Again, it's not a universally held, you know, teaching. A lot of people have heard this teaching and say, oh, it's... It's, it's the good that's going to happen. It's going to come. That's possible. Okay? It doesn't line up, I don't think, with the context. I don't think it lines up with expositional constancy. But there are a lot of people who teach that. Okay? I just don't think it's accurate. Okay? My opinion. 
Okay? I believe that this is a description of that the church will have small, humble beginnings, but as it grows, it will become something that it wasn't intended to be. And the enemy will infiltrate the church and cause as many as he can to be turned from the truth. Now, looking at the state of the church today, would we say that this is an accurate description of what we see? Is the church a beacon of hope for all the world, or has it grown into something it wasn't intended to be? Which better describes the church today? abnormally large, seeker-friendly churches that seem to be more interested in entertaining people instead of equipping saints, more interested in promoting self-help, self-confidence than the denial of self and the dying to self. Instead of teaching the Word of God, they heap up for themselves people who will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. A church that is more interested in accepting the lies of this world rather than sharing the truth of God in love. We want... Right? We want the kingdom of God to be something that experiences tremendous growth, that has a profound impact upon the world, that becomes a place for all the people to meet the Lord and to yield their lives to the wonderful message of the gospel. That sounds great. And I think that's why that interpretation you know, gives us the feel-goods. Right? Like, oh, that's a, we like that. Right? We want it to be that. But is that what we see? I, I fear in that hope to bring in as many as possible, to make this parable uh, fit that description, the church has become something it wasn't intended to be. The church has allowed the things of this world to infiltrate it and to set up shop within it. We've allowed the gospel message and the kingdom of God to become diluted and weakened that we may allow other people to come in and feel comfortable and feel welcome, though they are unrepentant in heart. And I believe this is a warning for us a warning to stay true to what God has clearly laid out in His Word, not to allow ourselves to compromise according to the world and the standards of this world. We need to make a stand for biblical truth. Okay, Our emphasis shouldn't be upon getting people into the church, but seeing people's lives touched by the gospel message. Okay, Seeing people's lives changed for the glory of God. Okay, It isn't just let's get a bunch of people in the church, right? Too many people think of that as success, Right? Look at that church. It's got a whole bunch of people in it. They must be doing something right, right? Not necessarily, you guys. Not necessarily. There are a lot of great churches, large churches out there that are, that are serving the Lord, that are honoring Him, doing great things, okay? I'm not trying to speak negatively, but unfortunately, there are a lot of churches out there that are really, really, really big. They're a mile wide, but only an inch deep, Okay? We need to make sure that we aren't allowing ourselves to compromise, okay? And, and to weaken and dilute God's kingdom. Uh, and so I think that this is a warning for us. Again, if you believe otherwise, if you've heard otherwise, that's fine. <laughs> I just don't think it's right. <laughs> Let's take a look at this next parable, okay? <laughs> It really is the same kind of parable as the parable of the mustard seed. Read with me verses 20 and 21. It says, And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Here we have the parable of the leaven. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like leaven which a woman took, hid three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now we understand the earthly example, right? Again, this is a really simple thing. Leaven is yeast that's added to dough. It only takes a little bit of leaven to permeate a large measure of flour or dough. And given enough time, the yeast will spread, working its way throughout the whole loaf of bread. Makes sense. We all understand that truth. But what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? Again, there are two interpretations that revolve around the same idea presented in the parable of the mustard seed. One school of thought believes this parable is describing the kingdom of God having a small beginning, but eventually spreading and impacting the entire world. The leaven in this case would be the church, and the meal represents the world. The church will have small, humble beginnings, but eventually will spread throughout the whole world, having a positive effect upon assimilating all institutions and tribes of men into one united kingdom of the Lord. The other school of thought says the measure of meal is the church, and the leaven is sin. This line of thinking suggests that sin will be inserted into the church and end up permeating itself throughout the church. Again, I believe the context, which we've already looked at, supports a negative implication regarding these parables. It is shared in connection with the parables of the wheat and the tares, the dragnet, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the soils. 
Also, there is expositional constancy and the repeated use of leaven in symbolism. Leaven, you guys, is nearly always used in a negative sense throughout the scripture. Okay, Jesus used leaven to picture hypocrisy in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. We just looked at that a, a few weeks ago, right? Uh, Jesus used leaven to describe uh, the false teaching of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. Paul used it to picture carnality in the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, as well as uh, false doctrine in Galatians 5, 9. You would be very hard-pressed to find examples of leaven being used in a good sense throughout the Bible because it's just not there, okay? Another often used item in symbolism is bread. In the scriptures, bread is spoken of in regards to the word of God, our daily bread. It speaks of sustenance that we get from the word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so what we see here is an idea that the kingdom of God will be described as having leaven, hypocrisy, carnality, false teaching, false doctrine, penetrating into the word of God. Again, I see this as a warning, something that Jesus said to warn us about the negative influence of false doctrine and false teachers and hypocrisy and carnality, that it will try and penetrate the word of God and his church. The word of God has been under attack for centuries Okay, false teachers and false doctrines have made their way into the church, have been added to the word of God. Listen, you guys, the word of God is sufficient. We do not need to add anything to it. We don't need to add our own ideas, our own cultural influences, whatever is popular and accepted from today's culture. Oh, we need to, you know, make the Bible more relevant and we need to change it. No, we do not. Okay? The Word of God is sufficient for every age throughout all the ages. Okay? It does not need us to change it. Okay? And so we need to make sure that we're not changing the Word of God to make it fit what the world is saying today. It is sufficient in and of itself. Okay? We do not want to allow ourselves to compromise the Word of God, allowing false teaching, false doctrine, and the thoughts and prevailing attitudes of hearts to change the way we look at it. Well, let's continue on looking at our next section dealing with the path to the kingdom of God. Read with me verses 22 through 24. It says, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We'll stop right there. Jesus departed from the previous location. He made his way through a number of other villages and cities, teaching along the way while continuing toward Jerusalem. And one day he was approached by a man who asked somewhat of a controversial question regarding how many are saved. How many will be in the kingdom of God? This was controversial because some rabbis taught that many or all would be saved. Some rabbis taught that all Jews would be saved. They would all be part of the kingdom of God based upon their status as God's chosen people. Okay? Doesn't matter. Okay? You're Jewish, you're in. Okay? Don't worry about it. Not all the rabbis shared this view, though. Some stated that there would be few who were saved that it was limited to only the extremely pious and zealous individuals who lived their lives totally devoted to God. The interesting thing is that Jesus didn't answer the man directly and tell him how many would be saved. Instead of tackling this question from the hypothetical or philosophical level, Jesus brought it down to the individual level, to the practical level. Whether there were many or few, Jesus' exhortation to this man and to those who were there was to strive to enter through the narrow gate. This man needed to spend less time thinking and worrying about others and whether they would be saved and make sure that he himself would be counted amongst the saved. He needed to strive to enter in. Now, I need to be very careful here. 
Because one could hear this and think that our salvation is based upon our works. That it's based upon us striving to enter in. Based upon our own energy, our own efforts. But that is not the case. That is not what this is teaching. The reason a person must strive is not because Jesus makes it hard to come to him, but because the world makes it hard to depart from it. Coming to Jesus will mean leaving behind the world and the things of this world. There is a cost associated with following Jesus. It involves repentance. It involves turning from our old sinful habits. And this can be difficult to do, nearly impossible in and of our own strength. And that is why we need to come to the Lord. And we need to place our hope and faith in Him and allow His Spirit to empower us to live the kind of life that He desires for us. Jesus actually promised to empower us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We would have power to be witnesses for God, to live for him. Paul writes of this power of the Spirit strengthening us in his letter to the church of Ephesus. He writes to them, praying for them, that Jesus would grant them, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, it isn't easy to live for the kingdom, but God promises to give us what we need through his spirit. We are not left on our own to try and work this out in our own strength and our own power. He gives us his spirit that we may know the love of Christ and that we might be filled with the fullness of God and have the power to live the kind of life to bring him honor and glory. Jesus said that many will seek to enter and will not be able. It's very important that we understand why they were not able. It involves three things as I see it laid out in verses 25 through 27. So follow along again. Verse 25 says, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. We'll stop right here. Okay, the first reason why there were some who will not be able to enter is based upon the fact that their time to respond had run out. Okay? The implication is that they had a time to respond. There was a proper time to enter in, but they delayed. And now the master of the house has risen up and he has now shut the door. The door was open. You had opportunity to come, but the master of the house came along and said, okay, time's done. And he shut the door. We all have one life and we must be faithful to respond to the opportunities God gives us to get right with the Lord while we still can. When our time on earth is complete, the door will be shut. But also you guys, we do get the sense that there are some who will harden their hearts so much that God will finally one day seal their fate and their opportunity to respond will be gone. God is long-suffering. God is patient, but he also has given us a free will. He has given us the power of choice and we must choose to yield our lives to him. And if we choose not to do so long enough, God may one day basically say, fine, have it your way. This is what you want. This is what you've chosen time and time again. Okay? And he will allow you to remain in your rejection of him. And so that's the first major obstacle that prevented these people from coming in. Their opportunity to respond had passed and they didn't seize it. But number two, the second major obstacle to those not being allowed in has to do with knowing the master and having a personal and intimate relationship with him. The people stand outside and knock at the door asking the Lord to open the door for them. But his response is, I do not know you, you where you are from, excuse me. The word know in the Greek, it speaks of not just knowing something arbitrarily, but rather it speaks of having a personal acquaintance with someone. The implication is that the Lord, the master of the house, must know you personally. Not just know of you, but to have a personal intimate relationship with you in order to enter into the house. 
The people tried to object. They state how they had ate and drank in his presence, how the master even had come through their hometown and taught in their streets. But eating and drinking amongst someone doesn't mean you have a relationship with them. The master will respond to them in the same manner. I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. You see, Jesus fed some 5,000 men, not including women and children, in one sitting. Another time he fed 4,000, okay? But it would be foolish to think that all of those people had a personal, intimate encounter with the Lord. And just because he passed through your hometown and taught doesn't mean that you responded to his teaching, that you yielded your life to him. Jesus taught to a mixed multitude of people wherever he went. The implication is very plain to see when it comes to how this applies to us, you guys. We must have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the only way into the kingdom. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door into the kingdom. Jesus said, I am the door in John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Having an association with him or, or knowing about him isn't enough. Going to church and hearing his word taught is not enough. You must respond to his gospel message and place your faith in him. Now, the third and final obstacle isn't as obvious, but I think the point is there and it's worth mentioning. The master of the house followed up his statement of not knowing those on the outside with, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. A worker of iniquity iniquity is one who labors in unrighteousness. A laborer earns wages, and the wages of iniquity, the wages of sin, is death, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The Greek word used here for iniquity, it's used 25 times in the New Testament and is most often translated as unrighteousness. It speaks of unrighteousness of heart and life. You see, our righteousness in and of ourselves is like filthy rags, according to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Okay, we just don't measure up to the standard even on the best of our days, you guys. We just don't measure up to the standard. Okay? Our unrighteousness keeps us from entering into the kingdom. The Bible says that our sins, our iniquities, have separated us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, they have hidden God's face from us. In order to enter into the kingdom, our sin issue must be dealt with. Our iniquities must be removed. And we must be given a righteousness that does measure up to God's standard. And this brings us back to Jesus. Isaiah the prophet speaks of the work of Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He says of Jesus, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus went to the cross of Calvary for us, he bore our sins. First Peter explains it this way, speaking of Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we turn to Christ in faith. He takes our sins and he wipes them away. But not only that, he also gives to us his perfect righteousness. Jesus did measure up to God's holy standard and he offers to us in exchange for our sins, his righteousness by grace through faith. That is the great exchange that took place there on the cross of Calvary. Jesus said, I will go to the cross for you. And I will take every single one of your sins and your iniquities and I will bear them upon my body in exchange I'm going to give to you my righteousness, my perfect standing with God. That is the gospel message. That is how one gets into the kingdom of God. You see, we can have all of our sins wiped clean but we still don't have a righteous standing. We needed both. We needed our sins wiped clean and we needed a righteous standing that would actually measure up. And Jesus offers them both to us by grace through faith. Romans tells us, but to him who does not work, 
but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Through faith in Jesus and his work upon the cross, we can have his righteousness credited to our account. (laughs) When God looks at us after we've come to Jesus Christ in faith, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ in our account. Our our account has been credited with what Jesus did. He was perfect, and that's what God sees. And so it is through responding to Jesus and only Jesus that our sins are removed and we are given the righteous standard required to enter into the kingdom. You see, without Jesus, we have no chance of entering the kingdom of God. Let's move on this last bit of our text dealing with the people of the kingdom of God in verses 28 through 30. We'll get started by noting verse 28. It says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Jesus describes how there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when those on the outside are able to look in and they see for themselves those who had already entered into the kingdom, okay? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of old. Now, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's used to describe the bitter an extreme anguish one would feel when they realized their entrance in the kingdom had been blocked and they were left outside the kingdom is often used to describe those apportioned to spend eternity in hell with the devil and his minions. This, you guys, was a very pointed word towards the Jews who looked to their relationship and their association with the patriarchs as their ticket into the kingdom. You see, many of the Jews believed that they would simply be grandfathered in, so to say, based upon the fact that they were from the line of Abraham. We're the descendants of Abraham. Of course, we're going to be in God's kingdom. Okay? We're, we're God's chosen people. <laughs> right? They thought that was enough to get them in, but it wasn't. And this would be quite a shock to hear such a thing to all the Jews who were hearing Jesus' teaching. And I think for us today, there are some who think that simply because their mother or their father or their grandparents or their spouse are believers, that it will be enough for them to enter into the kingdom. But such is not the case. It does not matter what your mother or what your father believes. It does not matter what your grandparents believe. It does not matter what your spouse believes or anyone else for that matter. What do you believe? Okay. Have you placed your hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone? That is what will matter when it is all said and done. Nobody is grandfathered into the kingdom. Okay? I'll let you in on a secret. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Okay? He only has sons and daughters. Abraham and the patriarchs, they entered into the kingdom according to faith. We read about how Abraham was credited with righteousness just this last Wednesday night in our midweek study through the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it states, And he, speaking of Abram, his name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, uh, Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram was credited with the righteousness of God through his belief in the Lord, through his faith. You see, the true sons of Abraham are those who come to the Lord by faith. Galatians tells us, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And this brings us to the final verses of our text this morning, verses 29 and 30. Follow along. We'll wrap this study up. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. When Jesus speaks of people coming from the east, the west, the north, the south, to enter into the kingdom of God, it is speaking about the Gentiles. This would have been seen as a huge slap in the face to some who were amongst the multitude that day. For Jesus to suggest that there will be Jews who are left out of the kingdom and that Gentiles would be let in was completely contrary to what most all of the Jews believed. Remember how I mentioned that there were two schools of thought out there when it came to the rabbis and who would be saved? right? Those who would enter the kingdom. One school of thought was that all of the Jews 
regardless of their faith, their deeds, their actions, and any other thing, would be granted access into the kingdom. That all the Jews would be saved simply because of their standing as God's chosen people. But the other school of thought was that there would be very few who would be saved, that only the super zealous, super religious observance of the law would make it in. Okay? When talking about those two, these are sects of Judaism, right? These were Jews who said, no, we're the, we're the really holy people here, right? Within the group of the, of the Jews. Of course, this would simply, or this, excuse me, would imply an exclusive membership of God-fearing Jews only. Most Jews despised Gentiles. They saw them as unclean. They saw them as unfit for the kingdom of God. And so whether you were from one school of thought or the other, this idea of Jews being excluded and Gentiles being included, that would come across as a huge shock to either group. Jesus concludes his teaching by stating how there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. And I think the implication is is that there will be quite a few surprises when it comes to those entering into the kingdom of God. Those whom you would assume to be first, to be prominent within the kingdom of God, will be last. Those whom nobody really knew about, those who were not considered to be much, they will be first. You know, I think in our own minds, perhaps we have an idea of who will be first in the kingdom of God, the giants of the faith, those whom God used to impact the lives of countless people for the kingdom. You know, I think of like, I think of like Billy Graham, like, oh man, he's going to be up front, right? <laughs> like, he's going to be like right here. And, uh, you know, there's certain people that we just think, right? Oh yeah, they'll be up there for sure. But there's going to be some surprises when we get to heaven. I believe there will be a number of people whom we don't readily recognize, people who served God outside of the spotlight, people who faithfully served the Lord in the background. God will reward their faithful service. And those who seemed insignificant will be seen as some of the most significant in God's kingdom. And I think the application for us is easy to see. You guys, let's faithfully serve the Lord and one another, whether in the spotlight or in the background, knowing that the God who sees will properly reward all of his saints. Okay? None of our work for the Lord, none of our work for the kingdom goes unnoticed. Okay? Galatians 6 states this, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. May we serve our Lord and one another faithfully, and with the power and strength that God provides through his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up, to allow it to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know we looked at a portion of scripture here that can be a bit confusing and there's been different interpretations. Lord, I pray if there's anything that I said that's not of you, Lord, that you would just strike it from our memories, Lord. Um, But Lord, I pray that everything that was of you that we would take to heart, that we would allow it to mold and shape us. Lord, that we will um, make a stand for you, Lord, that we would not compromise. Lord, that we would be a church that proclaims your love, uh, that proclaims your truth, Lord, and does so unashamedly. And Lord, I do ask that we would uh, be busy about your kingdom, that we would be uh, servants of the kingdom, bringing honor and glory and spreading your kingdom uh, as you would see fit. And so, Lord, give us uh, a heart after your own heart. Lord, give us a heart to see as you see. Uh, Give us a heart to share the gospel message with the world around us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great exchange that took place upon the cross of Calvary, how he took our sins upon himself and in exchange gave to us his righteousness, Lord. And now we can stand before you. We can boldly come before you because of the righteousness of Christ that's been accredited to our account. We give you praise, honor, and glory for that, Lord. We know that it is not of ourselves. It is only by grace through faith. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.